under the heading do not give up doing good and we are going to read Galatians chapter 6 verses 6 to 10 Galatians chapter 6 verses 6 to 10 and keep in mind once again the heading do not give up doing good and we have uh, reached this point in the study of God's word after we have spent quite a few Sundays to talk against doing good so that we are just very sure what we're talking of when we talk about doing good deeds uh, three Sundays in a row we we brought the word of God to you to uh, stress the point that our good works will not buy salvation we are saved by grace and grace alone but we've also spent some time to explain the word of God to say that if someone is a new creature in Christ by the Holy Spirit saved by grace that grace and that faith is never alone it is seen in good works and if this is still a problem for you to understand why we talk about why the Bible warns against good works and in the same time says keep going with your good works please uh, contact me we'll talk, talk about that because it's extremely important very important now let us read verses 6 to 10. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And the one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially of those who belong to the family of believers this then is the word of the Lord Galatians chapter 6 verses 6 to 10 may the Lord give us an understanding of the reading and the preaching of his word my dear and beloved friends in the Lord Jesus Christ J.C. Ryle in his book holiness writes a line which I suppose will not be considered as politically correct, especially in the light of the decision of the publishers of a major dictionary to not include anymore the word sin in their next edition of their children's dictionary. J.C. Ryle writes, People will never set their faces decidedly towards heaven and live like pilgrims until they really feel that they are in danger of hell. 
Men will never come to Jesus and stay with Jesus and live for Jesus unless they really know why they are to come and what their need is. Our text today has an earnestness, the same earnestness about it. It talks about both eternal destruction and eternal life. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And for the one who sows to his own flesh, from that flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Some may call preaching from this verse hell and brimstone, which of course it's not. I think that's just a very handy label that people sometimes use to discredit people who would preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in a way to make sure that people know about their faith in the Lord. But let us not be ignorant about the dead seriousness of this verse. It indeed speaks of the reality of eternal destruction on the one hand and eternal life on the other. There are only two places to spend eternity in, heaven or hell. There is only one of two possibilities, eternal destruction or eternal happiness. There is no middle ground and there is no second chance in between. What is so sobering about the issue is that how we live now will determine where we will spend eternity. Where we will end up will come as no surprise to us. You will not be surprised when you end up in heaven. Because the way you live now, your choices now, will determine where you will spend eternity. And you will not be surprised ending up in hell if that is your choice. Because to end up in hell is to now make a deliberate decision to not heed the word of God. The investment we make now will have eternal uh, dividends. The problem is just that in many cases we think eternity will never catch up with us. We might even think that God is not serious about the way we live and will somehow come to our aid just before we die and have, uh, and, and have then to uh, give account before his judgment throne. There's also another problem so easily overlooked. We might think that salvation without good works, which follows in the sanctified life of the believer, will count for nothing. And that sowing in the field of God's church is unnecessary. Instead, instead, we use the seed given to us to sow in the field of our own ambitions to satisfy our needs until the day of the Lord's return. And we overlook the reality that it is not only to make a choice to serve God and to follow the Lord Jesus, 
But what is important is the way in which we follow the Lord. That is important. And if I throw into this mix, as the Bible does this morning, and if you then say, okay, here we go, hell and brimstone preaching, and then on top of that, throw in a bit of money, then we sit up and we say, you're going a bit far now. Another quote from J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. Here he talks about the man we just described, the one who does not see the necessity of good works. He says, a saint, and then an inverted comma, saint, in whom nothing can be seen but worldliness or sin is a kind of monster not recognized in the Bible. End quote. When I began the study of the paragraph of Galatians chapter 6, it was relatively easy to see the relationship between verses 5 and 6. If you read that, it is almost as one verse flows into the other. But when I looked at the rest of the verses, the logical connection between the verses seemed harder to find. And yet, I strongly believe that the verses in the scriptures were not hastily strung together without meaning. It does not represent a few loose thoughts from the Apostle. No, it is inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he wrote for the benefit and the edification of the people of God. I read commentaries and and try to see the connection between what is said in verse 6 and what is said in verse 7 and 8. On the surface, one can understand that verse 6 is almost a verse on its own. And it can read like that. One who receives instruction should be a partner with the one who provides the instruction. And then what follows is verse 7 and 8. And one might think that even these two verses stand on their own. What you sow, you will reap. If you sow in to... to, uh, To meet the desires of your flesh, what you will then reap is something from that nature. But how do we connect these things? If indeed they can be connected, which I believe is the case. Verse 6 is about the partnership in the gospel. The picture is very beautiful. And may God's Spirit grant us minds to understand and eyes to see and hearts to to receive this teaching. Let's break the different segments apart to understand what the Spirit of God would want us to understand here. It talks about a partnership between someone who teaches, the student who is taught, and the message which is taught, and then the result of this message. What is taught for the benefit of the student, if we may say, break it up in these words, is the Word of God. The one who is teaching is the one sent by God with the authority to proclaim the message of God. The idea here is that with a full-time teacher who devotes his time and life to instill knowledge of the word of God into someone. And to instruct, that's the word used, to instruct, it it is to really spend time. We, We read about Paul that he spent time in Rome and, 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 and he, he really instructed the people on a full-time basis. That's what he's doing. 
He does so because you've got the calling and the authority from God. It is God's plan to spread his word this way. We read about this in Romans chapter 10. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news, uh, the tidings of good news. The outcome is beneficial for both the student and the teacher. They both grow to understand the will of God better and their relationship then is nurtured. And on top of that, the spin-off is that the student becomes a partner of the teacher and supports the teacher then to do the same with other people and in other places. In this way, the gospel is known to many people. You understand this, this wonderful dynamic process that's happening. There are some people in the church who don't like the idea that they have to support the work of the ministry. They abhor the idea that they have to put money in the plate to sustain the minister or a missionary and provide what is needed for the gospel to be heard not only locally but into the furthest corners of the world. But there's enough support in the Bible for this principle. Paul the Apostle himself refers, uh, refers to this principle when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have the share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Now, you might say, there we go. He's got a problem with his bank account. And now he lashes out. Far from it. Far from it. I'll get to that. The Philippians became partners with Paul in the gospel. How did they share in this ministry? They provided for him both spiritually and physically. When he was imprisoned in Rome, they were so concerned about him and his welfare that they sent Epaphroditus with a gift to Paul. But he was also their messenger between the church and Paul so that he could personally see how Paul was to encourage him with the state of affairs in the church where he himself was a leader. But in his bag, he had a tangible sign of their partnership. He had a gift from the church because they had heard that he was in need. Paul then wrote the letter to them to thank them. But in the letter, he, he wrote them to thank them. He also gave them once again instruction in spiritual life. That's what we have as the letter to the, to the, to the Philippians. And then towards the end of that letter, he writes, you, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that in the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Now that I seek the gift itself, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. 
But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. He said, he doesn't say, well, that was nice. That was really nice of you. <clears throat> That's good. It was really good for me. What you did was for your benefit. And it was to my benefit. It was for the benefit of the gospel. And it was for the glory of God. The Philippians could not go where Paul went with the gospel, but their gifts made it possible for him to go and spread the gospel. He first instructed them. They were then edified in the knowledge of the Lord and growing in the grace of the Lord. Then they became his partners, both spiritually and physically. I'm not preaching this verse to you because I'm in need today. <coughs> As a matter of fact, through you, the Lord is supplying in abundance. And we are really thankful. But when I go out into the Mali area as a patrol padre of the Presbyterian Indian Mission, you are partners with me. That's God's will. Having said that, the need to understand that there is so much more to do. We barely make our annual budget. We cannot do more than the minimum at the moment. And every month the board meeting looks at the figures and we are concerned. And this is now how verse 6 connects with verse 7 and 8. We need to understand that the financial support is not for the work of men. With that spirit, with what spirit do we support the work of the gospel? It is possible that some might think that the money in the plate on a Sunday is just for the minister. It is to keep him satisfied and to keep him out of the red in his bank account. But ultimately, we do not understand that the work of the gospel is not the work of men. It is not money put into the membership of the church with the expectation that someday they will marry me, baptize me, and later on, or my children and bury and bury me in exchange for my membership fee. Someone referred to some Christians as those who are always wheeled to the church. They wheeled in for their baptism. They wheeled in for their marriage. And wheeled in out for their burial. I put things 
in this way, I know it is harsh to, and, and undeserved for the vast majority of those who generously support the work of the gospel. And I, I don't have it against any one of you this morning. I, I wouldn't even know what you put in the plate. It's a matter between you and God. The warning of verse 7 is this. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. The matter of support, financially or otherwise, for the work of the ministry is a matter of service to God. It has nothing to do with the minister or missionaries wanting to give us, wanting us to give away, and then sometimes begrudgingly, what we could have spent somewhere else. It is God's work. If we call ourselves Christians, persons who are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, then the furtherance of the gospel is our business. It is precisely why we were saved in the first instance to the glory of God through good deeds which will show that we are indeed saved. To mock God then, according to this verse, means to sneer at God. It's to imply that his work is not important. And that the teaching of the spreading of the word is the business of those called to do the preaching. How many missionaries out there go hungry because of the lack of the support of the church of God? How many more, how much more can be done? We heard about the, 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 the orphanages and in other places in the world where people just have to do with the bare, bare necessities. While we can enjoy whatever we like. We don't know what it means anymore to invest in the gospel and the gospel work. And that's the point. How many people just can't, they want to, but they just can't go out to the furthest corners of the world purely because they have no support. Oh, I've read of missionaries who would, who would go there in the, in the days when it was really, really bad, but they went there and, and, and they'd use their, the, 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 their uh, 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 shaving blades until they couldn't use them anymore. But instead of throwing them out, the second-hand ones, they keep them just in case there is another day that they might come back to this because there is none. They would use the, the tubes of toothpaste and squeeze every bit out of it. And even when that's done, not throw it out because there might be a day that they need to come back to this. And then we, in the luxury of our safe surround, sneer at the importance of the task of the gospel. Is it possible? And if it is, why? You see, we make eternal investments. Any farmer knows the stark reality of the fact that he can only reap what he has sown. To sow is to make an investment. 
if the investment is to please the sinful nature or what is of the flesh or what is worldly, the harvest will be of that nature. And the Bible calls that destruction. The word also has the connotation of something rotten. There was the rich man who had a bumper crop. He actually had to build bigger barns to store up his crop. And then after all was brought in, he was really satisfied and he said to himself, according to Luke 12, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But the next verse is sobering and must have come as a shock to this man. God said to him, You fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And how, and now how will... Uh, and who now will own what you have prepared? The Lord adds to this, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In other words, we can be financially rich and spiritually beggars. This is what Paul is talking about in this verse. We also read something else in another letter of the Apostle Paul. He says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 6, <clears throat> Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Proper investment in the partnership of the gospel has a flip side. It has eternal evidence. But he who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We need to search ourselves, our motives, and the way in which we partner with those called by God to instruct others in the word and to preach the gospel. Maybe we should not look at what we give but maybe we should look at what we withhold and the reasons why we don't do so. My brothers and sisters, can material things ever weigh up against spiritual and eternal things? Is it more important to have the latest gadget or piece of furniture or to go on that extended tour on the cruiser or to have a new car, or have the flat screen television set, than to see that someone is able to be on the front line where the gospel can change the life of a person lost in sin. Wouldn't it be wonderful if someone in eternity would know that it's because you made a sacrifice 
you contributed to their salvation. I pray personally for discernment in my own life that I will not live to satisfy my sinful desires. And, and I, ha I have a lot to confess. May the Lord forgive me. That I will not use my income for selfish reasons and in the process make useless and rotten investments which will have no dividend other than to just satisfy my desire. I pray for a vision in my heart to see the need for the gospel to be heard, for the gospel to give hope and to comfort those thousands and millions in need, thousands who starve without the basic necessities of life, while I'll clinch to my dollar. May God rescue us from worldliness, from greed and from materialism. May God give us a wise heart to discern what is really important. More importantly, may God open our eyes for the reality that if we consider ourselves Christians, we must. You can look at that verse again, verse 6. Must. Partner with those who preach the gospel. If not, we have to live with the consequence. Let's remember the word of our Lord. There was Lazarus and there was the rich man. The rich man did not even take notice of the need of the beggar. When he did so, it was too late. There's only one of two possibilities, two places to spend eternity in. And the gulf between them, with no possibility of crossing it once one enters into it, is extremely danger. dangerous. The word of our Lord, where one's treasure is, there one's heart will be also. Amen. Now, Father, it is my prayer today that the word of God will not be seen as the word of man, that I will not be judged that because I'm a full-time minister, and I am in the financial need for this church to provide. I thank you for them. Thank you for what they give. But my prayer is, Lord, that each and every one here today will understand it is not about man. It's about the gospel and the eternal investment and the dividends which it will bring. And sometimes, Lord, we bring to you only that quarter like the widow. 
And if that is what we can bring, you'll bless that, and that's good. But sometimes we can bring far more. So, Father, we pray, please, teach us this morning that we are, each and every one of us, indeed, in the calling of the partnership of the gospel. What a wonderful calling. What a wonderful grace. Give us open eyes for that reality. Amen.